Hello, you're listening to the Proximo podcast, the weekly podcast covering all things project, energy, and infrastructure finance from Proximo, the leading source of information and analysis in the sector. We bring you news about the most important projects and interviews with the most important market players. I'm Tom Nelthorpe, a contributing editor at Proximo, and I'm returning to the podcast for the first time in at least a year, I think. Um, Before we introduce our guest for this week, we'll bring you a taste of what we've covered recently and what we have coming up. Uh, In terms of news from the last week, we've got details on financings for Ireland's ESB, which has closed a green bond issue to invest in smart metering. Eight Minute Solar, which closed um, on some equity to build out its solar portfolio with EIG. Irkutsk Oil, which has closed on a ECA financing for the construction of a petrochemical plant and Matrix, which signed on a Spanish solar portfolio. And that's all in the last few days. And you can read about all of those at ProximoInfra.com. In terms of what we have coming up, March brings our America's digital infrastructure event in New York on the 3rd of March. And then on 10th and 11th March, we're looking forward to returning to Miami for the first time in three years for our Latin America infrastructure finance gathering. Those events are hybrid, so you can join us physically or online, depending on your preference, availability, and, well, what is going on in the world. Um, but but now it's time for me to introduce my guest for this week's episode. He's, he's John Casola, Chief Investment Officer at the Canada Infrastructure Bank. Uh, John has a wealth of experience in project and infrastructure finance in Canada. Uh, before joining the bank, I think it was about three years ago, he'd had a couple of um, decent-sized spells at Investec and PwC, uh, and he's also spent some time practicing as a lawyer and working in government. Um, His role involves implementing the bank's uh, investment and advisory strategies. And I think it's fair to say that the bank over its five-year history has supported a pretty big range of assets and borrowers. Canada has been blessed with a long, uh, consistent and reliable track record in public-private infrastructure investment and deep debt and equity markets. So the CIB has consistently um, looked to prove where it can add value and identify areas maybe where the market can't deliver. Um, John, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, th- thank you, Tom. It's my pleasure to be here, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, a constructive and uh, interesting conversation. Uh, thanks, John. So, so first of all, do, do you think the CIB uh, arrived or has arrived at the right point in the evolution of Canada's infrastructure finance market? Um, and do you think it succeeded in in identifying and and sort of addressing gaps in finance? Canada is a you know is, a, is is like I said, pretty much a rock star in in public private um, infrastructure development. What was the uh, what was the sort of genesis of the bank and its mandate? Um, good, good question. I, I think you know, did it arrive at the right time? Uh, you know, not not sure. It's easy to pinpoint what the right time is. It's certainly an important time. Uh, I, I think you know, as you pointed out, Canada has been a rock star globally, but but lately, uh, in the last couple of years, I, I I think we had this big push of projects and and cracks are beginning to show in the models we've been using and in the risks capital uh, are willing to take. And so I I think it was a a wise move on behalf of government to think about different ways that we can address the market and uh, seek to get important infrastructure built. Um, So, you know, has it succeeded in addressing the gaps it identified? Uh, you, you know, absolutely not. There's no, there's no white waving the white, the flag of success at the moment. Uh, are we on a right path? Have we identified the gaps? I feel pretty confident that we have identified the gaps. I mean, when we look at an investment, we look at why they are not getting done in the private sector. Our first level of analysis on a deal that comes in is always can this be financed in the private sector in a more traditional way? And if, if not, why not? What is the gap, in other words, that we are seeking to fill? And those are often 
you, you know, uh, e economic gaps like, you know, an expensive transmission line, for instance, that has a small rate base, uh, uh, unable to support uh, the costs of, of that transmission line, as, as an example, or a commercial gap like lenders not willing to, uh, even though the base case looks like it will work well and provide a decent return, lenders not willing to come in and take a ramp up risk or or it's going to it's going to take too long or there's some other structural component that we can't get the traditional lending community uh, comfortable with. Another one is in indigenous communities. You know, there are a number of challenges when trying to get infrastructure built in indigenous communities, but of course, are no less important to get those things done. So I think, yes, we have succeeded in identifying those gaps. I think we're on our way to developing models and uh, to that address those gaps. Uh, and and I think there's still a ton to do to fine tune those models and and to get the actual infrastructure done. Thanks, John. And I mean, do you think during this this period, there's been a, a shift either really in terms of demand or, or, or supply in terms of the importance of private debt and, and sort of private equity capital in infrastructure development so is the will there still to use it and is the is the supply there or has there been a little bit of a reconsideration of its uh, of its role in infrastructure no i i don't i don't think it's certainly not my my uh view that there's been a reconsideration look l let me go back to first principles the whole fundamental premise of the bank is that we have the creation of the bank is that we have in this country and globally this country is the same uh, the same as anywhere else an enormous uh, infrastructure deficit we need to build more important infrastructure for our economy to function properly for people all across the country to have access to the supports and services that they need and at the end of the day we're an impact investor so to get the impacts that we seek such as ghg emission reductions so no debate i think uh among anyone uh on those topics the question is not the what it's it's the how and there's also a recognition i think that neither the private sector nor the public sector can handle and address that gap alone and and so and so the the feeling was that we need to find a way to develop a body that that can seek to kind of marry the needs and requirements uh, and and fill each other's gaps of the private and public sectors in order to have the best shot at addressing uh, this uh, the, the infrastructure deficit, and 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 so as I say, you know, when we look at a deal, we say, well, what is the gap that we're trying to fill? And ultimately, at the end of the day, what we do is. Our analysis always points us to what is the least amount of money that we could put into a deal in order to enable it uh, to get to market so and 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 achieve the outcomes that that we support and are striving are striving towards so the 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 emphasis is entirely on partnership uh, I spend a lot of time with institutional and private sector lenders and 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 market players talking about projects and what the art of the doable is and how we can work together. Um, Co-sourcing, they have leads that we haven't heard about. We have leads that they want to hear about for opportunities. Those relationships are, are critically important, and we spend a lot of time together trying uh, trying to get there. So, uh, I think I think the the infrastructure market in this country capital wants there's a huge thirst for um for projects for uh for reasonable returns 
you know, another reason why the bank was created in the first place was there was this notion at high levels that we have um, just this enormous wealth of disproportionate globally wealth of institutional investors. Our pension funds are the leading infrastructure investors in the world. Uh, I can't verify this, but someone someone mentioned a stat the other the other day to me that if you look at the top 20 infrastructure investors in the world, seven of them are Canadian pension funds. No, that I think is, I mean yeah, I, th- I think that, that's that's fair, John. I mean, there's been you know there've been some Australian and some UK investors, but they've gotten a lot, gotten rather insular of late. And I think can, right, Canadian, right. Yeah, but I mean, that, but that points to the notion that you, you know, and politicians in particular were asking, well, why aren't those investors you know investing here? They're they're covering the globe with their investments, and and you'll know. Tom, because you're in the sector and you cover this and and have some expertise as well as everybody else listening, that that there are certain conditions required. You know, one of which is size. Uh, one of you know, there's greenfield risk versus brownfield risk, which the you know traditionally this, a lot of institutional lenders were not comfortable in the greenfield space. That's changing slowly, I think, um, and we're seeing a lot more interest. So you, you, you know, we're there to try and facilitate their entry, identify what hesitations there are in the market. With institutional and other investors, and try and bridge that gap. We can be patient capital. We can we have a clean slate as to how we structure um, our deals, so we can really pinpoint specific uh, annoyances or or issues that are preventing that private capital from coming in, and try to address those directly. That's kind of the way we approach things. Thanks, John. I mean, as, as a quick follow up, a, a term that's getting extremely um, trendy in, in impact and development finance um, circles at the moment is the idea of blended finance. So you yeah. you bring in different types of capital at different points in in a, in a project's sort of capital structure. Um, I mean, it's it's sort of interesting though. I mean, having looked at the evolution of of the Canadian market again in in P threes in particular, you'd have debt equity, and then typically you'd have milestone or other sort of government capital payments. So maybe that. That blend is not new, but do you think that the blended finance is a is a useful framework for um, sort of assessing what you guys are doing and how you can participate in projects capital structures? Yes, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we're trying to uh, trying to propagate in the market is is you, you know we we are we are kind of model agnostic and and we're trying. We have a team. I have uh, I I have the. The, uh, the privilege of sitting uh, atop a, of an investments team of over 40 investment professionals. These are all private sector experience investment professionals with infrastructure experience. And we work very hard at being as creative as we can, uh, you know, regardless of, of model. So we don't slavishly follow a PPP model. In many cases, it doesn't make sense. And, you know, you, you and I will both know that as will your listeners, that 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 a little bit of the the, the luster is uh, uh, shine of has, has come has come off of those models for a variety of reasons. So so I, I think uh, blend. You can use the word blended. You can use whatever you want uh, to describe it. But I think we need to identify it as what tools do we have in the market overall. And we are a critical tool. I want to position the CIB as being a critical tool to work with the other ones. To enable them, so the way you know an example of that might be a project that can't get off the ground because there might be like if it's a port, if it's a transit extension, or something like that, or uh, that has a ramp up period uh, of four, five, six years. Um, you know, a lot of lenders won't come in and take that risk early on, but we can, and and we will. But once the ramp up risk has been covered, 
once the business case plays itself out and they achieve steady state to the point where there's a demonstrable case for lenders to come in, then we should exit. And, and we try and structure our deals so that we exit when we're no longer needed. Um, because, you know, our, our, when we talk about ROI or IRR, our return is impact. It's not money. And, and the impact we need to have is to get critical infrastructure built. So that, that would be the, the way we would look at it at the bank. Mm-hmm. So, so thanks, John. I mean, you're, you're, I think one of your, your earlier answers, and just now, there is a, a recognition that there's been a change. I don't know whether it's in the, in the risks that the, the public and the private sector respectively are willing to, to assume, so much as maybe the, 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 the price they attach or the premium they attach to that. But I do feel, feel that there has been a, a, a shift in that. And is that is that shift a large part of of, of maybe or a, a a big bit of context to the work that the bank does these days? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I mean, look, look, the old model that was that was all the rage for a while. I mean, I think it started from a good place. It started from a good place. The old the old worn out phrase in public private partnerships that the risk should go to the party best able to bear them. We we've all heard that uh, for a long time. But but I think slowly that turned practically into, you know, jam as much risk as you possibly can back to the other party, whether it makes sense or not. And, uh, you know, I, I think there were a lot of reasons why that happened, but it did. Um, and, and so I, I think we've reached a, a point now where the market is unable to, to, to unwilling to put up with that. I think the from a public sector perspective, there's a recognition that it is a short-term strategy to do that. You may, you know, win the battle w- when signing the, the the agreement, but but it, it's it's a, it's a recipe for lawsuits and 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 uh, delays and all sorts of unpleasantries in terms of getting the infrastructure built. And and so a more cooperative lens is, I think, being applied, and think a more realistic one, and you know, actually attributing value as best possible to the risks um, you know, be, that, that we're asking the other side to take. And, and so you know, I know in some of the models that in many projects we're working on, we certainly would propose, again, we're model agnostic. We largely respond to what the public sector entity wants to do. But when asked for our advice, and we are often playing an advisory role in the early stages of these things, we are often advising on some sort of an alliance model. Um, you know, bring in the developer early, work with them early, uh, uh, you know, keep some of the good principles of the public-private partnership model. There's a lot of good in that. So, so I, I don't, you know, I think we should throw the baby out with the bathwater on that one. I mean, take the learning, but, but let's get, the, get it right. Let's have a collaborative effort to get the split right in a way that's logical, uh, you know, makes sense for both parties and is frankly cost effective because there's a cost to all of these things. As you point out, you want to jam risk, the cost goes up. You want to take risk that you're going to end up taking at the end of the day anyway, then keep it and, and, and let the costs come down. So I do think there's a fundamental shift in the way the markets are approaching it. And you've seen a number of, you know, what used to be major global players and major Canadian players back out of the market and say, you know, we're not doing this anymore. And, you know, that's to me is a bit, sad. Um, I, I, I get that we're not doing this anymore, this being, you know, the, the, the risk jam model, if I could call it that. But I think that uh, there's a lot of appetite 
um, and uh, a lot of willingness to look at things differently from public sector perspective, at least as far as you know the projects we are involved in. Thanks, John. And let's look, look quickly at the your sort of public sector um, focused um, focused area. I, I'm, Canada, I'm fortunately um, probably for us, um, we've had this this pretty nice. Um, habit of different promise, different provinces getting fairly active at different times. Maybe different entities getting, getting involved. Um, from us, for for our point, that's that's great. But I guess from from your guys' point of view, you've got to keep track of a lot of different entities with their own political priorities, maybe with their own budgetary positions. Uh, how easy is it sort of working with those your know, different stakeholders, very different sizes, very different priorities? Um, I, I mean, how do you coordinate that as a, a sort of single, you know, federal? federal level body. Yeah, that's a great that's a great question, Tom. It's it's challenging. Look, you know, we have the federal government and we have you know uh, 10 provinces and a couple of territories and a whole host of indigenous organizations that we deal with and so you know, we work very very hard at building relationships. We have you know, uh, uh, a very senior person in Western Canada that whose job it is to keep in touch with and establish relationships with key decision makers in, in the governments in those provinces. We have a similar person for Quebec and the Eastern provinces. And, and we have, you, you know, a head of Indigenous and Northern infrastructure who works very hard um, at establishing those relationships and keeping current with, with needs. So it's critically important that we do that. Again, you know, those projects largely in this country, infrastructure projects largely belong in the realm of of, of municipalities and and provinces. So uh, we we work very closely with them. As far as the feds were involved in key projects um, that we are invited into, and I think that list is growing. And uh, I, I do believe that is there's a recognition at the federal level of the value we're adding when they do involve us. And so there are, without getting specific, there are a number of very, you know, high profile initiatives going on in the energy space and the transportation space, exactly that we have been asked to participate in and the value that's being demonstrated to some extent, Tom, if I may, I mean, I think, I think we're almost becoming a victim of our own success. There's value added that we're, you know, we're being drawn into a lot more than we should and, and can handle given our resources at the moment. But I think, you know, to answer your question directly, critical piece of what we do, those relationships mean everything to us. But I'm guessing because you guys don't have, you know, P3 in in your name, you can approach people, particularly on an advisory basis, with a, um, you know, relatively agnostic um, face. You say, well, we're here to we're here to finance and develop infrastructure rather than impose a solution. I'm Correct. guessing that that's helped, hasn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. We do not come with a model. We're agnostic. We we if they have a if if they have a uh, an unsolicited proposal process as an example we will respect that as long as you, you know as long as it makes general sense and uh, you know they don't have to do a full blown procurement if that's not what their system so we're really very much feeding into the systems and processes of of those governments and the advice that we provide to be clear is generally around we have the expertise to provide you know that advice but is really geared towards coming up with a structure that allows for our participation because of our parameters and our requirements around, you know, it's got to be revenue generating. It's, it's not a grant. It's, it, it, it's a loan. There's got to be private capital in the deal. All of those things that are important to us form the basis for our advisory. But other than that, once those needs are met, we really are quite flexible. And I think that's gone over very well. 
Thanks, John. And I, I feel like I'm, I've been bombarding you with various sort of no, current, buzz, yeah. current buzzwords in, in, in project <laughs> finance. But, but the other one is the energy transition and its needs. And I mean, it's from our point of view, historically, if you talked about government and infrastructure in, in, in Canada, you'd be talking about social infrastructure and, and, and transport. But, but the, the transition sort of cuts across all of that to a certain extent, doesn't it? You've got um, maybe, you know, street lighting, smart cities, uh, EVs, school buses, um, and, and, you know, you'll have transmission lines and renewables and so forth. So where, where does the CIB sit with that, that sort of those transmission requirements? Um, do you guys think you're ready? Because we're talking about huge numbers sometimes to, to, to do this. And I mean, if, you, if you, you're willing to share your thoughts, where do you think the private sector is in, in terms of meeting the demands? Yeah, look, I, I think I think we are ready, and I, and I think that is a key element of what we do. I mean, I talked about our us being an impact investor, and and our uh, one of our stated outcomes is is GHG emission reduction, which is you know another way of saying energy tra- transition. We need to be a key player in helping Canadians and the government of Canada hit their targets. And and to 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 do all of the things uh, environmentally that that Canadians expect their government to do. So that's the premise of what we're doing. And so we developed specifically a retrofits program, both you know public and and, and private buildings, and that is, is has been very successful. On on the zero electric buses one, for instance, we think that's a key for transition. We've already reached our initial allocation and are going back to ask for more. There's a huge demand for take up um, on on that one. Um, you know, we, we're doing battery storage with the likes of Oneda battery storage. We've done Lake Erie connector. That's transmission. There's, you know, there's work going on on the Atlantic Loop and a Prairie connector. I mean, our, 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 we're involved in all of the projects you might imagine that would involve uh, a greener approach to the market. So, you know, is 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 private capital uh, a, a ready and willing and able? A hundred percent. I get calls on a daily basis. You know, basically asking, are you ready yet? Are you ready yet? Because there needs to be some structuring that happens behind the scenes, obviously, for all of these things. The other piece of it I'll I'll mention quickly is, you know, the discussion around carbon capture and storage and and uh, and low carbon fuels, hydrogen. These are things that are talked about quite a lot. And I can tell you, um, you, you know, without hesitation, we have done an enormous amount of work in that space. Uh, we believe we are ready or close to ready, uh, that's probably more accurate, um, to go in that space. But of course, we'll need to wait for, you know, the government's lead, the federal government's lead on what they're going to do in the carbon capture space. For instance, there's, you know, there's still some work to do and some announcements to be made around a tax credit that everybody's waiting for that they've announced. So in order for us, going back to our first principles, to determine what gap we're actually filling, we need to get a better understanding of what the whole picture is and what the different component parts are. So we're engaged with the private sector on carbon capture, on low carbon fuels. Absolutely. On hydrogen, we are already engaged and have been for some time. I think we're waiting for pieces of the puzzle to come back and, you know, to to start to take form so we can better and more readily identify that gap. But we are kind of ready, willing and, and able to go as soon as those things come into focus. All right. Thanks so much, John. I think we could have we could have talked about any one of the things you raised in, in much, much greater detail, but I think that's all we've got time for. So, so John, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll keep an eye out for the next steps for the CIB and Canadian infrastructure market in general. Um, but, but thanks very much for your time. That's my pleasure, Tom. Really appreciate it, yeah. and uh, uh, hope it's been helpful to all the listeners. 
Thanks, John. And that's it for us. If you're listening for the first time, you can subscribe through Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or get and get all of our episodes as soon as they're published. But for now, goodbye and happy building. 